Amen. Thank you so much, worship team. Thank you for being here. I was praying, and I know God's brought everybody here for a reason. Well, you think you might have just come like you know, always come, but today, today is going to be something. You be ready, okay? As you open up the Word, Daniel 5, let's look at it together, and let's just see what God is going to do to bring about a, a spiritual awakening, a revival in us, even, even today. I don't know if you came ready for it, but maybe it could happen even today. I've been praying that the Spirit would fall like in the second service like it fell in the first, and I think uh, we need that. And as we think about the things that are going on in our world, we know that the answer is Jesus. We know the answer, the hope we have is heaven, and we want people to go with us. And so we need to, to be always about His business. And so we're preparing for that. Oh, the old evangelist, Gypsy Smith, I love Gypsy Smith, He's a, I quote him a lot, but as we think about Gypsy, what Gypsy Smith about, said about revival, how it happens, is you, you take a piece of chalk and you draw a circle around yourself and you just pray until everything in that circle gets right with God. And that's how it's going to happen. That's how it's going to happen for our nation. It's not just our nation, not Washington, not Austin, not even the courthouse in Plains. It's you, and it's me, getting things right with the Lord. And so let's get prepared to do that. We're going to talk about the handwriting on the wall in, in Daniel 5, the handwriting on the wall. You see, we know what that means, don't we? We've, we've come to understand that in a whole new way, even in these days. But we, we know what that saying is. If, you, if you've ever had a three-year-old in your house, you've had handwriting on the wall, right? But that's not the kind of handwriting on the wall we're going to talk about today. We, we know in our day that the handwriting on the wall is a, is a, a sign or points to something that, that's coming. We, we can see the handwriting on the wall when you were a junior high, if you were like me in junior high, and, and you had your little heart crushed, and your, your, your girlfriend said, I just want to be friends. You could see the handwriting on the wall. It was coming. The end of the relationship was coming. And so... We think about a job and the situation with a job, and, when you, and we see how the, the economy is going, and we see how the business is not making money, and, and, and we can see the handwriting on the wall that our chance at prosperity is fast fading away. We can see the handwriting on the wall, and then when we think about what that phrase comes from, it comes from Daniel 5. And as we think about what it means, it means that there, there are signs of coming disaster, judgment. Oh, I don't want to preach on judgment. I don't want to preach on something that would come, be coming that might affect you and me and our, our nation, our world. But folks, let's look at the handwriting on the wall. Let's don't miss an opportunity to see what God is doing in our day. In not just our lives, but the lives of people around us. And I don't care how we got here. We're here. We all have a different opinion about that. But we're here now. And so let's let God use it now for wherever we are. So that God can change our hearts to be in line with His heart. And I know His heart is for the family. I know His heart is for the church. And I know most of all, His heart is for lost people. In our world, in your oikos, your sphere of influence. And so we got to prepare, even now, 
to understand what God is doing in our day a little clearer. And I think the book of Daniel shows us a lot about what God is doing in our day because you know what the theme of the book of Daniel is? Despite appearances, in spite of, of circumstances, God is still in control. And He's working the elements of history toward His plan, His fulfillment. And He's not allowed anything to happen in our world and even in these days that He's not intending to redeem for His glory in the expansion of His kingdom. I want to share something with you from a devotional that Jennifer and I read. She probably reads it more than I do. and I read, I'm reading through the Scripture myself. But she shared this with me, and it's about the book of Daniel. I, I don't know if Paul Tripp knew that we would be going through, but on August 12th, he wrote these words for the devotional on August 12th. This last week, he, he writes about the circumstances around the book of Daniel. We're just going to kind of uh, kind of review a little bit of what, about what's going on. Remember, they're in this foreign land, this, this land of exile, this weird sort of land, and he writes about this. He says that Daniel's world is a world of trouble. It's a world of injustice. It's a world of oppression, idolatry, danger, political corruption, war, and various other kinds of trouble. But it is not a world out of control. For God is working in the midst of of all of that. And and I didn't get to this in the first service, but, but think about this for just a moment. God was engineering the circumstances way back then through Babylon, through the Babylonian Empire, to get to, to where we are today. And God's working through the, the circumstances. He's still in control of all of these. And many things in our life are out of control. However we got here, they're, they're out of our control. And you, you face many things that make you feel unprepared, small, weak, But you must not give way to the thinking that your life is out of control. You need to remind yourself of the truths that Daniel confronts in all of us, that over all the trouble that confounds and dismays us is a God of glorious wisdom, power, and grace who rules every moment of every situation. No, you'll not always see His hand. You won't often understand what he is doing. Does this sound familiar at all? There will be points when life won't make sense to you. At times you'll wish that life would be different. There will be moments when you feel so unprepared for what is on your plate. And in these moments, in these moments, look up. And remember that above all there is a throne and on it sits a God of unimaginable majesty ruling all for His glory and your good. That's a good devotional, wasn't it? New Morning Mercy. I want to recommend that to you. And we think about what God is doing. I want to draw your attention to Daniel 5. And I want to tell you the first part of that section. We read it earlier, but uh, in the early service, I just want to tell you the first part, and then we're going to get to about verse 18 there. So hold that in Daniel 5. What's going on in that world, that world of trouble? Remember Nebuchadnezzar, that wicked king who God, I think, converted. 
at the end of chapter 4, he is praising God like never before. He had had no concern. He was at ease. He was living a life of, of prosperity and luxury in his palace with his feet kicked up, just drinking a cold one, I'm convinced, of what he thought was the life of luxury. And God got his attention in a dream, troubled him, and he didn't know what it meant. And God was pronouncing judgment upon him, and God humbled him. Remember, he ate like a cow, ate grass in the field, went crazy. You know, it's in there, Daniel 4. It really happened. The king uh, went crazy. And, and yet God used that humbling experience to restore him. Chapter 5 not, doesn't end in, on such a happy note for the Babylonians. And, and about 25 years later comes his grandson, a guy named Belshazzar, who's ruling. And he knows the story of his grandfather. But he doesn't honor the God that his grandfather had come to honor at the end of chapter 4. And in fact, what he's doing is he's throwing a great party. There's a thousand lords. If there's a thousand lords at this party, then all of them have a wife and maybe all of them have a concubine and all of them have servants. And there's like eight, ten thousand people at this huge party in this banquet hall. And they're all drinking freely. Uh, And he's coming under the influence. And he said, hey, why don't we get out the old uh, gold vessels from the temple in Jerusalem? I'm sure it's... Speech is slurred by this point. Why don't we drink from them? And what he's doing is he's practicing sacrilege against the one true God, the Most High God. It's in there, Daniel chapter 5, verse 7, 7 verses. And he's causing everybody else to do that. And not only that, are they practicing this, this kind of sacrilegious sort of ceremony, but they are toasting to their own gods, their own idols, the gods of gold and silver and bronze and wood and stone. So he's practicing idolatry there. And that happens all over. All over history, all over the world, all over right now. But let me tell you, there's a payday coming someday for everybody. And in chapter 5, we see it's coming for Belshazzar, for the Babylonian Empire. And as we think about that, the the first point on your outline on the back of your bulletin that I want you to see about the handwriting on the wall, God's handwriting says, even before we look at the Scripture, it's this, that we don't mess with Him because He keeps His Word He had said that the Babylonians were done. This world empire was done for. Remember in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2 in Daniel, as we've been walking through this, the the head of gold was was, uh, Nebuchadnezzar himself. Got a little ahead of myself. Nebuchadnezzar. And God says, your your reign, your rule is going to end, and the Medes and the Persians are going to take over. And God fulfills that. Even before... He he tells Nebuchadnezzar that in a dream. He had told the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 51.11, sharpen the arrows, take up the shields. This is a hundred years before Babylon ever fell. And it says, the Lord has stirred up the kings of the Medes. That's the Medes and the Persians. The the breast of silver and the arms of silver that, that are taken over from the Babylonians. 
And because of His purpose is, destroy, is to destroy Babylon, the Lord will take vengeance. Vengeance for His temple. And He does. And in the meantime, Belshazzar is just partying up with this drunken orgy. A little drunk there, I guess. I stumbled over it. I'm not. I'm not under that influence. I'm not, I promise you. I'm filled with the Spirit, not with wine, okay? That's right. That was bad. That was bad. But he, he's living it up. And you know what's happening on that very day, October 12th, 539 B.C.? We know the day. Because it's the day of the end of the empire. It's the day the Babylonians fell. See, they, they thought they were invincible. In the ancient world, they didn't have missiles and they didn't have helicopters and they didn't have all of what we have in, in our defense system. You know what they had? A wall. They had a wall around the city. That was their protection. And in Babylon, the city of Babylon, which Belshazzar was probably the the uh, ruler of, of that city and his father, Nebuchadnezzar, was probably the ruler of the whole, whole empire. And that wall around that city was 320 feet tall. I mean, that's taller than that, that image that Nebuchadnezzar made of himself, that 90 feet tall. It, it's, it's huge. And it's 90 feet, or no, no, 90, 80 feet thick. So you remember the old movie, Ben-Hur? Then they run those chariot races. You could run those chariot races around that, that wall. It's, it's 80 feet thick. And they've got watchtowers, 100 or so watchtowers all around, stationed all around that wall. And they've got gates of bronze. And they have 20 years of food and supplies stored up. And so Belshazzar thinks, there's no way, I, even if he's heard, and I think he probably has, that the, the Medes and the Persians are outside his walls. He's not worried about it in the least because he's got all this protection. And besides, they're invincible. Nothing can happen. You know what happens? What happens to every superpower nation that thinks they are invincible? They fall. The city was built on the Euphrates River. And they did not account for that river. And Cyrus dammed up that river. And the troops walked in through the marsh. And while they were partying in the hall, the end happened for Belshazzar. And that's what the handwriting on the wall is all about. I want you to see it as Daniel interprets that handwriting on the wall. And we can stand for this. We're not gonna, it's not going to be real long, so we've got time. Daniel 5, let's start with verse 17. Daniel answered the king. The king has said, I'm going to give you a purple robe. Anybody that can tell me what this handwriting means, and I'm going to give you a chain of gold. And Daniel says, keep your gifts. He's a little miffed. Daniel's probably 75, 85 years old. Belshazzar, I think, is the spoiled brat ruler of this grandson who everything's been given to him by his great-grandfather Nebuchadnezzar and his, his dad. And, and so he's, he's miffed. Keep your gifts or give them to someone else, but I, I'll tell you what the writing means. And remember, he was hesitant to tell his grandfather 
because it was a, uh, a negative sort of message toward Nebuchadnezzar, but he's glad to tell this guy, Belshazzar. Your majesty, the most high God sovereignty, or, or the most high God gave sovereignty, majesty, glory, and honor to your father, Nebuchadnezzar. He made him so great that the people of all races and nations and languages trembled before him in fear. He killed those he wanted to kill and spared those he wanted to spare. He honored those he wanted to honor and disgraced those he wanted to disgrace. But when his heart and mind were puffed up with arrogance, he was brought down from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven from human society. He was given the mind of a wild animal, and he, would, he lived among the wild donkeys, and he ate grass like a cow, and he was drenched with the dew of heaven until he learned that the Most High God rules over the kingdoms of the world and appoints anyone he desires to rule over them. That's a phrase that we use three times in chapter 4 with Nebuchadnezzar. That's the lesson he had to learn, and he learned it. But Belshazzar doesn't. You are his successor, O Belshazzar. Verse 22, and you know all this. And yet you have not humbled yourself, for you have proudly defied the Lord of heaven and have had these cups from his temple brought before you. You and your nobles and your wives and concubines have been drinking wine from them while praising gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, gods that neither see nor hear nor know anything at all. But you have not honored the God who gave you the breath of life and controls your destiny. So God has sent the hand to write this message. This is the message that was written. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parsin. That is what these words, this is what these words mean. Mene means numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. To kill means weighed. You've been weighed on the balances and have not measured up. Parsim means divided. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And then Belsh uh, verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed. Father, teach us some more from this passage. In your name we pray. Amen. So God keeps His Word. We don't mess around with Him because God kept His Word that they were going to fall. And God, it reminds me of some other things where God, we know God has kept His Word. For instance, years pass, but we know that God redeemed that situation and all the situation in the world, and He began that redemption process through Jesus. Remember? John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he didn't want to destroy the world. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And God sent His Son, verse 17 says, into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. Here's good news for us. He didn't come to rub it in. He came to rub it out. He didn't come to, to just to convict us of our sin, although that's a key piece before we ever understand the redemption that's taking place of how 
We need a Savior. We need, in our world, in our country, in our hearts, we need a Savior, and He's provided one. And the Scripture says, whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever doesn't believe, and this is what I want you to see from from John 3.18, whoever does not believe, anyone who does not believe it, is condemned already. Now, for Belshazzar or any of us, God had already said He sent His Son. And the reason He sent His Son was to not condemn us, but to save us. And if we believe in Him, we're not condemned. But if we don't believe, we're already condemned. Our days are numbered. Folks, you know that, right? Whether we're condemned or not, our our days on this earth are numbered. None of us are going to live forever on this earth like it is. None of us. All of us are going to die. The ultimate statistic is still the same. One in one dies. And we've got to come to grips with that. Whether it's a a virus or something else, we're going to die. We're not going to keep people from getting sick. We're not going to keep people from dying. And we've got to be ready. And we've got to help those people around us that we love so much to be ready for that moment. Because we, we know as, as we think about that that there are, there's a day coming, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, how God is going to weigh all of us, all of, of humanity. Before we get there, though, I just want to remind you some other promises from, from Peter that God fulfills. Well, one thing I, I am so glad about is that he knows how to rescue godly people in the midst of condemnation that's coming. And he did that by sending his son. But Peter writes it this way, Second Peter 2, 9. See, so you see, the Lord knows how to rescue godly people from their trials even while keeping the wicked under punishment until the day of final judgment. Woo, that's good news to me. All of the, all the evil, the wicked, the stuff that's going on in our world, God's going to take care of it. The Scripture says, God says, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He'll take care of those folks. But here's what I want us to see too. That we got to be praying for our enemies. We've got to be loving our enemies. That's what Jesus told us to do. What in the world would it look like in our world if Nancy Pelosi came to Jesus and had her life changed? What would it look like if Donald Trump did? See, it works on both sides. All of us need to be pursuing the Lord. All of us need our hearts transformed, no matter what persuasion we are politically. Because politics ain't going to save us. Education ain't going to save us. Technology's not going to save us. Medicine's not going to save us. Jesus. Jesus is going to save us. And we've got to get right with Him. And we've got to help other people get right with Him. If you're not right with Him, you're condemned already. And I don't know if you understand what that means. That means you're going to hell. And that's a place you don't want to go. It ain't a party. It ain't what's happening with Belshazzar here on earth. It's a, it's a place of eternal torment and torture. It talks about 
worms and fires that never quench it and all sorts of nasty stuff. Weeping, gnashing of teeth. Miserable. You don't want to go there. You don't want anybody to go there. And so when we think about where we are, just know that God keeps His Word. And He's given us time. He's been patient with us. That's the other thing I want you to see. 2 Peter 3, 9 says this, because those folks were looking for Jesus to come back in that, in that day, in, in Peter's day, just after Jesus had left. And, and we're, I, I don't know about you. I'm looking, I've been praying this more than I've prayed in a long, long time, maybe ever in my life. I'm, I'm praying, come, Lord Jesus, come. Take us out of this mess. You do that? Well, that's what they were doing too. And, and yet the Lord was delaying. And here's what Peter says about that. The Lord isn't really slow about keeping His promise as some people think. No, He's being patient. Patient for your sake. He's given us time. Like he did Nebuchadnezzar, there was a, a whole year period. Nebuchadnezzar didn't turn, Nebuchadnezzar didn't humble himself, so God humbled him. He doesn't give Belshazzar time. I don't know how all of that worked, but probably because he knew the story of Nebuchadnezzar and he should have known better and he was without an excuse already. As I thought about that more, I didn't even share that. See, you guys come to the later service, I get a little bit better. You think about, I don't know about that. <laughs> But you think, as you compare those two, God God restored Nebuchadnezzar, redeemed him. But Belshazzar, he dies that night. It reminds me of those two thieves on the cross next to Jesus. You remember one says, remember me when you come into your, your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. So no matter who you are, where you are, you call out to Jesus and he can save you in that instant, in that moment. Today can be that day. And then there's this other thief on the other side. We don't have to despair because that thief that was saved, but that other thief, you ever think about what happened to him? We can't presume either, can we? We can't take it for granted. We got to know we got to be right with the Lord. We got to not be guessing at this thing. Do I? Am I? Am I in? Am I out? We got to know. The scripture tells us that we can know. These words are written so that we may know that we have life, and the life comes from Jesus Himself. Trusting in Him, putting your faith in Him, and what He's done for you. On the cross, because the second thing you see here in the, in this whole scheme of things, we know our days are, are numbered. That's what that first word, that mene, the handwriting on the wall. The second word, tekel, means that we have been weighed and we have been found wanting. And all of us are going to be weighed at some point. We're all going to face the judgment. We're all going to come before God. The Scripture says it's appointed for a man to die once and then to face the judgment. It's going to happen. I believe as the Scripture. It's true that that is going to happen. And here's what 
Uh, Paul writes about that judgment in 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all stand before Christ. Christ the one that is going to be the one that judges us to be judged. And we will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. Now that verse scares me. I don't want to get what I deserve. Every religion on earth thinks they're going to get to heaven by doing more good than bad. And that's not the way it is with Christianity. That's not the way it is. We're weighed. Every human being is weighed And we are all, listen to me, not just Belshazzar, but we are all found wanting. None of us measures up. Not Billy Graham, not Mother Teresa, not the best person you know, not any of us. The Scripture says we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We don't measure up. We're going to face the judgment. That's bad news. The wages of our sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, when Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.10 about standing before the judgment seat of Christ, read on down. Read the rest of the chapter. Read on down to, to verse 21. And it says, For our sake, He who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin. For us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. You know what that means? We measure up. Not because of what we've done, but because of what He's done. Think of it this way, students, as you go back to school. If you could, I don't know if you care about these sort of things, but if you care about your grades at all, if you could... Good thing for just a moment. You failed every class, every every score on your report card is F, 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 F all over it. Reading, writing, arithmetic, everything, just F, F, F. You failed. You don't measure up. But then the smartest kid in the class says, hey, you know what I want? I want you to have my grades. I want you to have my report card. I want you to take this home to your mom and dad. And, and I want you to get a, I don't know, $10 for every A you get or or whatever to your grandparents if you do that sort of thing. You know, would you do it? Of course you'd do it. And that's what that verse is talking about. Jesus took our sin. He who knew no sin became sin for our sake. And he gave us his report card. Righteousness. His righteousness. And now God sees us as the smartest kid in the class. 
Now God sees us through the blood of Jesus when we put our faith and trust in Him. We don't have to be condemned. We get in on His ticket. We are weighed at that moment as we stand before Him and we are found righteous. How does that happen? Well, Jesus goes from being the judge to being the Savior to taking our place. I don't know how that happens. I don't know how all the configured, but I know it, and I believe it. He died for me. So we think about this one last thing. I want you to see that last word on the handwriting on the wall. Oh, that's divided. That's the word divided there. Parsing or peres or that's that's Spanish. I'm I'm off on that. But it's it's the same word. And, and what it, it's talking about is that nations fall because individuals fall. The nation of Babylon lasted another 25 years after Nebuchadnezzar, but it fell because Belshazzar fell, and God brought judgment. God had had enough. His patience ran out. And we can't ever individually or as a nation presume Every nation has a shelf life. Every nation is going to fall at some point. Even our nation. Because every nation's people fall. Think of it this way. Students, stay with me here for just a moment. History, okay? A little history lesson. In 1900, the greatest superpower in the world, the one who had the had the most, um, the strongest military. 1900, we're going back 120 years. England. You think of them that way now, students? England, the superpower in the world. They were the, the superpower in that day, in 1900. Not anymore. 1940. Let's just go 40-year increments. In our world, who's the superpower? Germany, isn't it? They've got the most military might. They're taking over all of Europe. It takes the whole world to stop them. Are they a superpower today? 80 years later? Mm, I don't think so. 1980. Hey, it's us, right? Remember we talked a couple weeks ago about the miracle on ice? There's another superpower in the world in 1980. It's called the USS Alexander Sotovitsky, I don't even know how to say his last name, writes about why they, they fell in the first place and why they Russia and the USSR ultimately fell as a world superpower. You know why? Men had forgotten God. That's just 40 years ago. I remember 1980. I don't remember 40. Some of you might. What about 2020? Who is the one superpower? It's us. Folks, I don't want to say this, but there's coming a day, and it may be closer than any of us want, when we're going to fall. When we're going to fall. And so we have got to turn. We've got to be clear about this. 
that we need renewal and revival in our land. And the, the great formula is Second Chronicles 7.14. The judgment begins not in Washington or Austin. It begins with the people of God in a place like this. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their land. Now, does any of that apply? Yeah, it does. We got to seek the Lord. What does that mean? Well, we got to live in light that God is really real, that He's present, that He knows what's going on. He knows what's going on in your heart, my heart, everybody's heart from teenagers to adults, to senior adults, to children in our basement, everybody, God knows what's going on. We live in light of His face. We seek His face and we seek a relationship with Him. We seek Him and we pray. Will you join me in that? In that great formula for spiritual renewal because in our history, there's been moments where we were on the brink of ruin. And in our history, there have been four great spiritual awakenings, and I'm praying for number five. Will you join me? We need it. I want to leave you with one, one story. 200 years ago, again, children, listen up. You're going back to school. This is a history lesson, okay? 200 years ago, a guy named Alexander de Tocqueville was commissioned by the French government to find out what was the genius behind America. What made America great? So he travels all over the country for months and months and months. And at the end of it, he gave a, a report and he, he said something to this effect. He says, I traveled all across the land and, and I, I was in search of America's genius and greatness. And I, so I, I searched her harbors and her rivers, our, our transportation system in that day. And it was not there. And I searched her fertile fields and her deep forest, our, our natural resources. Makes America great, right? It was not there. I searched her education system, her places of higher learning, and it, it was not there. 200 years ago, he said, I went to her churches and I saw the righteousness proclaimed, called for from her pulpits. And I discovered the greatness, the genius of America. And then he says these words in his report. America is great because America is good. When America ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. And you tell me, are we good? Are we seeking the Lord? Do we care 
do we know him in a real and personal way? Folks, life as we know, no matter what you think of all of this, whether it's going to be over November the 4th or whether it's going to endure, I don't know. You don't either. But I do know this. Every one of us ought to be seeking the Lord. Calling on Him. Turning from whatever wickedness is in us. And expecting Him to heal us. To forgive us. Will you join me? Now today can be that day. You don't know Him. You don't know His power. Today's the day. What are you waiting for? Don't be condemned. Understand there's no now no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. You come give your life to Him today. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. You do it today. For the rest of us who've done that already, you take a next step. We're trying our best to stay on mission with the Lord. You need a church like that. You want a church that preaches the Bible. You, you, you want a church that honors God and serves the community. You feel called here. You, you come and be a part of us today. The rest of us, we better be on our face praying. The altar's going to be open as in a time of invitation. We, we got time. You got time. Come on, worship team. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, I don't know what you want to do in these moments. I know there's some people in this place that want to get out of this place. But I know there are other people in this place that want to pray. Want to confess. Want to repent. Want to get right with you. There are people in this place who waited a long time to give themselves to you. Today, Lord. Let them do it today. The power of your son's name, I pray these things. Help us respond to your spirit as it moves, as you move. Your holy name. Amen. Stand up. Let's sing. You you respond as God leads you right now. The altar's open. You come and pray, or you come and you give yourself on the altar to the Lord. It's time. God, it's not by accident you're here today. God wanted you to hear these things. God wants you to get right. Do it right now. As much as you can. As much as you know how. Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin. Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. 
Precious blood of 